seated. Good morning. I send greetings from Maple Avenue Baptist Church, which is my home church, which is the church on which I am on staff. Uh, we have affection, church to church, and also from pastors to pastors. So my senior pastor, James Seward, is good friends with your former pastor, Ross. And uh, I know that James really appreciates Ross, and I've got, we've gotten to know Nick as well, uh, your interim lead pastor, and, and we've just appreciated Nick as well, his godliness, his friendship, uh, and so, but is it not on? Yeah, I'm just loud enough that it carries. <laughs> Sorry, this is the one thing they told me to do, and I'm already feeling here, so. But, uh, so, yeah, so anyways, greetings from Maple Avenue Baptist Church. Um, I do have a, a bit of a circus, oh, I mean children at home, uh, and so they're four, two, and uh, five months, and so uh, we just, I just sent them to, to Maple Avenue this morning, uh, married to Alyssa, a wonderful, lovely wife, and uh, so, and uh, yeah, so they, I mean, they would have been with me, but it would have been a bit chaotic, but then they told me they have four kids, and they're all here this morning, so good on you guys, but thank you for leading us in worship, and uh, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Titus 2. We're going to be in verses 11 through 14, and my goal this morning is to put the gospel on display in such a manner that you would be emboldened to live the life that God has called you to live, namely the Christian life. Now, Nick, do you stand for this reading of Scripture too, or no? All right, well, why don't we stand for the reading of this portion of God's Word as well? Um, let me read it as you follow along in your copy of God's Word. It says, Titus 2, 11 through 14, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself the people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You can be seated. Let me lead us in a short prayer. Father, we need you so desperately this morning. I, I, I can't bring anything of spiritual help or aid to my brothers and sisters, and certainly none of us can apply these things without your Spirit's help and without the grace of the gospel. And so I just pray that you be with us this morning. We really need you, and you're so kind to give us help. And so we just pray that you be honored as a result of our time together this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to give you this morning just uh, the Christian's job description. Now, all of you know what a job description is. It kind of lays out the prerequisites or the qualifications that are necessary for a certain position. And then it lays out the duties uh, of said position, career, whatever it is. And so I want to give you the Christian's job description. This would be the main responsibilities if you were looking at a job description sheet. This is how it goes. And so this would be important for you if you're a Christian. It says, be holy. Be kind to others. Love one another. Pray regularly. Run from immorality. Exercise self-control. Love your wives. Respect your husbands. Don't give in to the desires of your flesh. Take an interest in a younger Christian and invest in him or her. Be submissive to authorities. Do good works. Avoid fighting. Be courteous and respectful. Now, all of these things are things that a Christian ought to be doing, 
All of these things are part of your job description. If you're taking notes, I read that pretty quickly and intentionally so. A lot of these are actually taken from the book of Titus itself. But when I give you a job description like that, it can feel a bit disorienting. It can maybe even make you feel guilty because you're not maybe doing many of those things. It can be disorienting. It can be unhelpful because it can sound like this. Be good, strive for good, do good, and be better. And it would be sort of like me handing you an inflatable bouncy castle. You know, there are probably be lots of those in our community today because of Halloween and things like that. But, but if I g- gave you an inflatable bouncy castle, told you to figure it out, you'd probably be able to figure out that you're supposed to inflate the thing. But without an electric pump, you'd be able to do nothing about it. And that's a little bit like me giving you the job description, but then not giving you the electric pump. If we're left with a list of commands, we're we're probably a little bit lost in how to carry out those commands. With the commands and nothing more, it's like me handing you the bouncy castle and not giving you the electric pump, which would allow you to fill it up. So this morning, what I want to do, I think what Paul wants to do, is that he is going to show us where the enablement and the motivation for obeying those commands comes from. What Paul is going to do is he's going to teach us that the grace of God in the gospel is what fuels our Christian living. Let me just say that again. It is, Paul is going to teach us that it is the grace of God in the gospel that fuels us to live the Christian life. I trust that many of you are believers in the Lord Jesus here this morning. And we praise God for that. And I trust that many of you desire to live the Christian life well. That you desire to obey God and love God and honor God with the life that he has given to you. And you know what to do. And this morning I want to show you and explain to you and convince you how it is that you can be enabled and motivated to do that better. So for some of you this might be review. For some of you this might be new concepts. But either way, we're going to look at this passage under two headings. First... The school of grace in verses 11 through 13, and then the heart of Christ in verse 14. We're going to spend the majority of our time under the school of grace. The school of grace. Look with me to verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. Now the word appeared can refer to something becoming visible in a physical sense, such as when the sun rises in the morning. Or it can refer to something becoming known. And in our context, what Paul is referring to is he's referring to the incarnation and to the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. So the grace of God has become visible like the sun in the morning and it has been made known to us through the incarnation and through the earthly ministry of Jesus. When Jesus came into this world as a baby in Bethlehem, Okay? And then through the compassion and care shown during his earthly ministry, and finally through his death, resurrection, and ascension. That is how the grace of God has been made known to us and to the world. And I just want you to look with me to verse 11 and notice to whom this grace has appeared to. It has brought salvation, it says, to all people. It has far-reaching effects. This is significant because you might expect Paul to say, well, God's grace has appeared and has appeared to the nation of Israel, the chosen nation. 
Or you might expect Paul to say, the grace of God has come and it has appeared to those who are moral and upright in heart. No, that's not what Paul says. Paul says, not that the grace of God and salvation has been brought to the more righteous and moral amongst us, but it has actually been brought to all people. And two quick illustrations from the book of Titus itself is helpful. Right in this passage before, Paul speaks of slaves. And he speaks of how some of those slaves were converted and were Christians and they were forgiven of their sins. And slaves, you must understand, were at, on the bottom rung of society. And even yet, some of them were saved by the grace of God. And then Paul is actually writing to Titus, who is in Crete. And Cretans had a reputation of being lazy and gluttonous. They were immoral people. And even them, some of them were saved by the grace of God. And so even if you're on the bottom rung of society or you're kind of immoral and wicked as a culture, God's grace is able to permeate that setting and save some in that place. Now, how I would like for us to apply this text this morning is because some people here, or maybe by extension some people that you know, have arrived at the conclusion that they are too bad or too unworthy for the grace and the mercy of God. Now, it is true that all of us are unworthy, but some of us have come to the conclusion that we are too bad for the mercy of God, for the grace of God, that we have done something in our past which puts us out of the reach of the grace of God, or that we don't come from a moral or religious background, and so that thing about grace and salvation, it's for those people who go to church, but it is not for me. Some of you just really struggle with... um, kind of a, a, a morbid sort of introspection and you're co- constantly evaluating your life and your heart and the only conclusion that you co- can come to is that you are very much unworthy and unlovely and therefore not um, deserving of the grace and the mercy of God and so you kind of cut yourself out from his mercy and his grace. And the one thing that I want to tell you from this passage is that God's grace is far-reaching And God's grace can reach the worst of sinners. And God's grace can reach the most rejected and on the fringes of people in society. Because the question, as it relates to the gospel of Christ, is not about how good you are, or even how bad you are, but it is about the enormity of grace that God has shown to us in Jesus Christ at the cross and in his resurrection. I want to make this abundantly clear. If you're here this morning and you think of yourself to be outside of the grace and the mercy of God, that you're beyond the reach of the love of God, that you somehow are singled out to be the one person in the world that God would not love, you are wrong. And the reason why you are wrong is because the Christian gospel says it has nothing to do with you, how good you are, how bad you are, but it has everything to do with the grace and the mercy of God that he has shown to us in Jesus Christ at the cross, conveyed to us through this message that we call the gospel. I hope that's helpful for you personally, and maybe perhaps it's helpful for you as you speak to Christian or to people who are out, kind of in your life, in your spheres of influence. So the grace of God saves us, but notice with me verse 12, the grace of God also trains us. Now, the word train has this connotation of like training children or rearing children, discipling or disciplining children. It has the sense of educating or instructing, chastening or discipline. So it's, what, it, what it's saying is that the grace of God trains us just as a godly father or mother would train and bring up their child. It is the grace of God which trains us for godliness. Now, this is a vital thing for us to grasp. This interplay between the grace of God and our day-to-day life, okay? So 
I think that sometimes as Christians what can happen is that we really do understand the things that we just spoke of. We understand that the gospel says to you and to me, no matter how bad you are, no matter the things that you have done, because of the grace of God, you can be forgiven for your sins. We understand that. We can check that box, and, and that's very clear to us. But then we move over here, and then we say, okay, but when it comes to the Christian life, I know that God's involved. He kind of gives me the instructions, but I kind of do it in my own strength. I kind of exert my own effort, and as a result of that, I can now live the Christian life. Salvation by grace, Christian life by essentially my own effort. Yeah, God helps me. Yes, the Holy Spirit's somehow involved in there, but, but it's really me exerting effort that allows me to live the Christian life. And Paul wants to correct that kind of thinking. The closer that we can connect the grace of God and our Christian uh, daily lives, the better off we are going to be. And I'm going to try and explain this just a little bit more. Okay? We need to work harder at bringing the grace of God to bear, not just on our salvation, but upon our day-to-day living. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. So, for example, we, we don't pursue godliness because we are now morally superior to the non-Christians around us. We don't pursue godliness because we are afraid that God might punish us. No, as gospel people, we, we are enabled and motivated to pursue godliness because of the grace of God in the gospel. We understand, for instance, that by his death, Jesus actually set us free from sin so that we might be able to pursue righteousness. Okay? And we also understand that one of the primary purposes for Jesus dying on the cross was so that you and I could pursue holiness. I'm not sure if you've ever thought about that. Why did Jesus die on the cross for you? Most of us would say so that our sins could be forgiven. Yes and amen and hallelujah to that. But also Jesus died on the cross so that you and I could practically pursue holiness in our day-to-day lives. And I think that's missing in the North American evangelical church today. I think often we think salvation by grace, Christian life by my own effort. Now, it's interesting because the grace of God trains us to do two things. One is negative and one is positive. We're going to look at the negative first. Okay, the the, the grace of God trains us to say no to certain things. Look with me to verse 12 again. It says, the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Ungodliness has to do with living in such a way as if God did not exist. And worldly passions, you can kind of get a sense for the phrase, but it refers to strong desires that are patterned after the world, right? Or out of the world. So strong desires that are in alignment with the world and the culture that we find around us. And grace teaches us actually to to say no. Now, this is an interesting concept, especially in the context that we find ourselves, because... Here's how our culture often argues that if you're loving towards someone, if you're kind towards someone, if you're gracious towards someone, then you would allow them to pursue with all their heart what they want to pursue. You'd want people to say yes to what is in their heart. You want people to follow what's in their heart. And the grace of God actually comes in and says, no, that is actually wrong thinking. You must not pursue your heart. You must not pursue worldly passions. In fact, there are certain things, if you're a Christian, that you're called to say no to because it is harmful for you. And the two things that Paul lays out for here is that we must be willing to say no to a mindset and to a lifestyle that operates as if God does not exist. And we must say no to and be willing to reject the pattern of life that is aligned with the world but is against God. And so there are certain things in our lives that we must be willing to say no to. 
Now, the other side of this is stated positively. The grace of God trains us to say no, but the grace of God also trains us to say yes to certain things. It says that grace trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. As I just kind of elaborate on this, increasingly, Christians should be characterized by mastery of himself and his passions, conduct and speech towards others that is pleasing to God, and a mindset that acknowledges God in his day-to-day living. Now, those are, you know, like we're dealing with a lot of words and definitions here, so let me try and kind of fill this out. Um, If you've been alive for, um, you know, probably, why? I was going to say a few minutes. It's probably not true because as a baby, you don't really experience temptation. But, but if you've lived for any length of time, then you experience temptation pretty regularly. And as a Christian, I would argue that there is a sense in which you experience temptation more because all of a sudden you're mindful of the ways of God and the instruction of God and the commandments of God. And so you're aware of just how much temptation there is in and all around you. And so I just want to give this sort of uh, extended illustration on three voices that intend to speak at the moment of a Christian's temptation, okay? So this is obviously kind of made up, it's allegorical, but, but the moment that a Christian is tempted, I think that there are kind of three voices that could come in and speak, and so I want to kind of illustrate that in these three voices. So the first is temptation. Temptation comes in and says, hey, listen, you're just going to be a lot happier if you give in to this pleasure. You'll be more satisfied. Hey, like, no one's really watching it's probably not going to do a lot of harm. Like, what's, what's the big deal? And, 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 if, and if we're honest, like, God will forgive you if you just give in this one time. That's temptation. The law, right, comes in and says this. What are you, what are you doing? Don't do this. How, how dare you do this? God's going to be really mad at you if you do this. Okay, like, like let's get your act together. You're better than this. That's what the law says. And then I want to hear the voice of grace, and I'm trying to kind of fill out what I think Paul's getting after here, but let us hear grace. Let's remember, this is at the moment of the Christian's temptation, and this is grace speaking to the Christian. You could give in to this. Temptation's partially right. God will be gracious to you. He will forgive you. Because when you sin, God gives more grace. Your standing before God isn't dependent upon your performance, so of course... If you fail, God will be gracious to you. But let me come at it from another angle. Listen, Christian, your desires might be very strong in this moment, but this is the very reason that Jesus came, to set you free from such desires. Jesus came so that you could live the pure and wholesome life that God intends for you. And in this moment of temptation, Christian, I want to remind you as grace of three things, that Jesus deeply loves you, that Jesus came to die for your sins and for your freedom, and in this very moment, Jesus himself offers his grace to you so that you can say no to this very temptation. You see the difference between temptation, law, and grace? I think that this is what Paul is trying to unleash upon us. What is happening is is that grace trains us is that we are allowing the gospel to have its intended effect in our lives, okay? So just as a doctor would inject medicine into the bloodstream so that it can be unleashed on the whole body, so God reminds us that we are trained by grace so that its its effects might be unleashed in our day-to-day lives. 
God wants the gospel not just to give you a ticket to heaven, but God wants the gospel in all of its glory to be unleashed upon your life so that you can live the life that God intended for you to live. Now, Paul completes this section by pointing us to the future. And, and this is really key because, you know, you know I'm only 31, but, but even for me, I, I feel that the Christian life can be difficult at times. In fact, it's often referred to as a struggle or as a battle or even a spiritual war. It can be hard to go through life and, and endure all just the, the effects of the fall and the curse just through various trials of various kinds that come upon all people. But for the Christian, there is the particular struggle of always endeavoring to pursue godliness and righteousness when the world, the devil, and our flesh are all working against us in tandem to bring us down. It can be hard. It can be tiring. It can be disheartening. It can be discouraging. It can be exhausting. And so there's a lot of ways that we can take verse 13, but I think verse 13 reminds us that that battle and that struggle will one day come to an end. Now, I worked one time over the summer at a lumber mill. So my wife and I were in seminary in just California, not great California, but just California. So <laughs> we were in, uh, <laughs> so we were there. And, uh, and, and so, you know, living in the States, there's the exchange rate. We're not really able to work while we're down there. Uh, you know, and then seminary and Bible college can be expensive. So we worked in the summers in Alberta. We could make a lot of money just in those four months. And so that's what my wife and I did. My wife worked at a gravel pit. I worked at a lumber mill. And, um, I mean, you can imagine what a lumber mill does, uh, a sawmill, is that it takes um, these logs and these trees, and they come into the yard, and they dry out in the yard, but then eventually they're brought into the sawmill. And the whole process from log to boards happens in a sawmill. Now... You can imagine all the debris and the dirt and the bark and the sawdust and the waste that comes off of that process. And I had the privilege um, or the, the, the bondage of being on the cleanup crew for this lumber mill. And let me tell you, friends, like, if you can sign up for any job, don't sign up for being on the cleanup crew at a lumber mill. Um, so, but it, it, was just an, it was just an awful job. Long hours, we worked 12 hours, it was usually overnight so that the machines weren't running, so that we weren't like, you know, sawing two. And, um, you know, it was 12 hours and all of us were just like looking forward to the break and then once we were, you know, looking forward to each of the breaks and then, and then if it wasn't that, then we were looking forward to, uh, you know, when we were off and then if it wasn't that, then we were looking forward to the weekend. Like it was just an awful job. But the, one of the things amongst the many that kept me going was I just knew that there was an end date in sight. It was only for a season, it was only for a short time, and one day it would come to an end. And the Bible here and everywhere else is extremely clear to you, Christian, that your struggle and your fighting and the pain and the burden that you feel in this world and the weights that you carry will one day come to an end because of Jesus. They may come to an end now, but more poignantly, according to this passage, they will come to an end in the future. Look with me to verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So your fighting will sin will not be forever. You will not suffer the effects of the curse eternally. 
Bouts of doubt, discouragement, and depression will be done away with in the future. Our encounters with pain, sickness, and disease will one day come to an end. Relational strife will be no more. Unruly passions and wicked desires will be snuffed out. As Christians, we are optimistic because of the return of Jesus Christ and the promise that we find in the scriptures of this. Now, I just want to point out one thing exegetically, and that is that the word appearing points happens or occurs twice in our passage. The first time it referred to the first coming of Christ, the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all people, and then now it's saying that we are waiting for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is how the Christian is to live. This is how Paul intended for you to live and for me to live and for the Christians that he was writing to to live. He wants us with one eye back upon Calvary's cross. He wants us with one eye back upon the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus because that says to us that God loves us and it will free us from our sins. And it's a marvelous message that we find in the gospel. But secondarily, Paul wants us with one eye towards the consummation of all things when all of God's promises will be fulfilled and all that plagues your life here and now will go away. You can think of it like a bridge a little bit. You can think of like a bridge with two pillars on the end, and there's kind of a long rope bridge in the middle. And the moment that you take your eyes off one of the one of those pillars, the moment that one of those pillars comes comes coming down, then you're going to be disoriented. But no matter the winds and no matter the waves, if you have one eye on Calvary and one eye on the conservation of all things, then you will have hope and perspective in this life. And that's how I believe that Paul wants us to live the Christian life, with one eye on the death of Christ and one eye on the return. Of Christ. This is our hope in life and death. Now, that is the, the school of grace. That's verses 11 through 14. And, and I just want to spend a few moments looking at the heart of Christ in verse 14. The school of grace is what we considered, and I want to look at the heart of Christ. Now, um, Nick mentioned that I am a youth pastor. And so I work uh, with junior hires on Tuesdays, senior hires on Thursdays. And obviously, they have, in some sense, the same struggles as you. In another sense, unique struggles to them. And one of the things that I think that young people struggle with a lot is the question of identity. Who am I? And so we talk, you know, a decent amount about that here and there, trying to lead them in the scriptures to understand who they are in, as created beings in the image of God, but also as redeemed people in Christ. Now, but, here, but, you know, I, I say it's a young person problem, but I think it's a, it's a, you know, like a 31-year-old problem. I think it's an old person problem. I, I think it is a question that we all ask. Who am I? Why am I here? What grounds my identity? You know, is, is your identity primarily found in the fact that you're a grandparent? Is your fi- identity primarily found in your career or your job or how you make a living? Is your, is your identity grounded in your glory days in high school where you played, you know, football or something like that and you're the star? Is your, grounded, is your identity primarily grounded in your children or in your, a relationship? And, and all these sorts of things. And, and I just want to remind you, Christian, of simply, quickly, four aspects of your identity uh, considering and flowing out of the heart of Christ for you. This is true of you if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ. First, I just want to remind you, Christian, that you are deeply loved by Christ. Jesus willingly gave himself for you. Look with me to verse 14. Who gave himself for us out of compassion for humanity, out of the bowels of his heart, 
Because he saw our condition and he felt so badly for our miserable condition, he came down out of heaven and became God incarnate and lived a perfect life in our stead and went to a Roman cross to die a gruesome death so that you and I could experience the kindness of God. Jesus did that for you. You are deeply, affectionately loved. Second, Jesus did this in order to rescue you from the powers of evil and darkness. In Colossians, it speaks of how we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. And it says here that he has redeemed us from all lawlessness. We are born into this world sinners and sinful by nature, and therefore we have the shackles of sin and death around our feet. And Jesus came in and took, took a key and turned our, the shackles, and so we are now set free, and we can go out into freedom. So you're loved, and you're freed to live a life of righteousness and godliness because of Jesus' death on your behalf. Third, he gave himself to redeem us and to purify us. Now, I'm not, I, I don't know hardly any of you, I, I have no idea about your history or your spiritual journey, but may, perhaps there are some of you in this room who are just really weighed down with guilt and shame or guilt and regret over something that you've done in the past. Or maybe a lot of you just feel shame because of something that you did or maybe because of something that's been done towards you and so you feel the need to to hide from, from God and from others. Or, or, or maybe you, you, just, you just, for a variety of reasons, maybe it's a temperamental thing, maybe it's because of your upbringing, maybe it's because of things that have been said to you, you just feel that you are unlovely and unworthy of all these things that we've been talking about, and you just feel unclean and dirty and deserve to be an outsider and not an insider. And what this passage reminds us of is that if you are in Christ, then he intends to purify you both positionally and practically. Jesus' power, his blood, his grace, and his gospel are ought, ought to have a purifying, cleansing effect upon our conscience, upon our hearts, and upon our lives. And the way that he does this is that he goes to the cross, dies for our sins, sheds his blood so that our sins can be forgiven, but also so that we can be cleansed. And he brings us in on the inside and says that you belong here. We've got work to do, but you belong here. And out of that belonging, I'm going to transform and change you forever and a day because I am gracious. And he has done that for you, Christian, and is doing that for you. Jesus loves us. He frees us. He cleanses us. Oh, and listen to this. He treasures us. Look with me. Verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. A people for his own possession. Jesus did all that we are talking about. Jesus did everything that we have mentioned. And the very purpose of his coming and the very goal of his dying was so that we might be called to him Part, and we might be adopted into the family of God and so that we would become the chosen, precious, and treasured people of God. You know, I, 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 I serve at a very you know, conservative church. We're conservative theologically. We talk about sin. We talk about repentance. We're not afraid to preach the gospel. We're not afraid to, I don't know, like for example, like, you know, be, um, uh, how do I, 
word this in the, in the, in the great, most gracious way. You know, we, we, would, we would hold to traditional values concerning, like, the, the marriage and family, and, and so we'd be against homosexuality, things like that. So, but, and which, which are all good things. But, but I'm afraid that sometimes in conservative churches, sometimes in churches that hold a sound theology and, and they're so much consumed with getting the doctrine right and correct, which is a good thing to do, God calls us to that, that sometimes we can be stiff in our understanding of the heart of Christ for us. The heart of Christ for sinners and for sufferers. Christ deeply loves us. That's why he went to the cross. And Christ deeply values us, and that's why he calls us to be his treasured possession. And God deeply has affection for us, and that's why he adopts us into his own family and treats us as if we were his sons and his daughters. And I want to remind you, and I have the great privilege of reminding you this morning, Christian, that you are deeply loved, and you're deeply treasured by the God of all the universe and the Savior of the world, and that is shown to you most clearly at the cross of Calvary, where he shed his blood for you and died in your stead so that you could be forgiven and freed and treasured for forever and a day. Jesus loves you. He values you. He wants to know you intimately, and he invites you to have a relationship with him. Now, if that's true, then I want you to hold on to this statement. Everything that I am, I owe to Jesus. Everything that I am, I owe to Jesus. And sometimes I think that we can think of the Christian gospel in this way. You know, I go uh, driving downtown sometimes, and there's people who are begging for money on the side of the road and things like that. And let's just say, for example, which I usually don't, but that I was to give this person a $20 bill or something like that. You know, that's gracious. It's, you know, he didn't do anything for me. It's undeserved. That's kind of me to do. And I think that's, but but, you know, 20 bucks wouldn't alter his life. And I think that's sometimes how we think of the gospel. Yeah, that was kind of God to do that for me. That was a nice thing he did. But it doesn't really change my life, does it? No, I, th- I think the gospel is more like this, that, I, that you know, let's, I'm, not, I'm not a rich man, but let's say that there was a, a, a rich man driving on the side of the road, and, and, and he picked up that homeless person, and he brought him into his very own home, and he, and he, and he helped him to work through the issues of life that got him there, and, and, he, and he was able to find him a job and a steady paying job so that he was able to, to, to turn around his life, and he treated this man as if he were his very own son and invited him to holidays and to Christmases and whatever else, and that would be life-altering. This is what the gospel has done for us. This is what the gospel is to us. Everything that I am, I owe not to myself. I mean, obviously, we want to honor our parents, and we owe much to our parents, but, but not even to our parents, not even to the country that we belong. Everything that I am, I owe to Jesus and to his grace. This is the testimony of the Christian. Now, if that's true, if everything that we've been talking about is true, then it should be very natural for us to pursue the things that we talked about at the very beginning in the Christian's job description. You know what holiday it is today, right? Don't say Halloween. It is Reformation Day. <laughs> we are Protestants, uh, and uh, it is Reformation Day. It is not Halloween. It is Reformation Day. Uh, and you know that you know, uh, several hundred years ago, over 500 years ago now, uh, Martin Luther pinned the 95 Theses to the wall of the uh, door of the, the castle uh, door in Wittenberg, and that kind of kick-started the Protestant Reformation. 
and we are heirs of the Protestant Reformation, one of the things that came out of the Protestant Reformation was that we are saved not by works, but by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so we are Protestants, and therefore we are very leery, weary. We don't want to include works in any equation that involves salvation. We are saved by grace through faith alone, apart from works. We are not saved by works. I want to make that abundantly clear. And yet, Martin Luther himself said this, we are saved by, we are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. What he meant by that is that the faith that we are saved by faith alone. We're saved by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone, and we don't earn acceptance with God. But the faith that trusts in Jesus results in a transformed life. And that's where Paul ends. And I entitled this morning's message The Grace That Works. Look with me. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous, who are passionate for good works. Not so that we can belong to God. We already belong to God. We are already loved in his treasured possession. But because we are his treasured possession and because we want to show off to the world how great our Savior is, we are going to be zealous and passionate for good works. That's how it works. We are not saved by good works but we are a people because of salvation by grace who are passionate and zealous for good works because we want to put on display to the world and to, the, to one another how great Jesus is in his saving power. Now, um, I talked a lot. Um, we, we were just at a, a missions meeting yesterday. We had a Spanish uh, brother come. He was from Venezuela and uh, he, he did a great job sharing his testimony, you know, but you know, he only talked for like 10 minutes, and he joked at the end just saying that, you know, like, I, I, I'm out of my English words, and so I'm going to sit down. And so I, I'm definitely not out of my English words. Like, I keep talking, but I'm going to try and be done soon here. Um, so let me just end with this. I, I, I'm sure that most of you have um, heard of the name Louis Zamperini or the book or the movie Unbroken. And his, and his story is well known, uh, but I, I want to bring it in here because I think it greatly illustrates the point that I've been trying to make this entire sermon. So Zamperini, if you don't know, was an American soldier who suffered greatly at the hands of the Japanese as a prisoner of war. He was treated in a cruel manner, was beat brutally, and was particularly targeted by the Japanese corporeal, infamously known as the bird. Okay? So Zamperini was a prisoner of war. He was greatly mistreated at the hands of the Japanese, particularly by, by this guy named the Bird and his, you know, the, the guys who were under him. And Zamperini would survive the war amazingly. But obviously, after going through such an experience, he'd suffer with, you know, what we would call maybe post-traumatic stress disorder and things like it. And he was filled with anxiety and hatred in those post-war years. He would have nightmares about the Bird, and he would withdraw into depression and lash out unpredictably. He resorted to alcohol to find solace, and so he was enslaved, miserable, and hopeless because of the way in which he was treated. But then in 1949, several years after the war ended, Zamperini attended a Billy Graham crusade. He heard the gospel, was converted, and the night of his conversion, he went home and poured out all of his alcohol and... Um, obviously saying that, you know, I've, because of Christ, I've turned a new leaf, and I'm, I have new life in Christ, and this is not what I'm going to turn to anymore. And then a few years later, Zamperini would go to Japan 
and he would uh, do a tour to Tokyo, which is incidentally actually where I was born, but that's besides the point. Uh, and he had the opportunity to speak to hundreds of Japanese war criminals. I mean, just just amazing scene there, but um, Zamperini spoke, he preached, and then at the end of the service, he, he you know, jumped off the stage and then ran towards the men who were the guards who mistreated him so badly during the war, and he ran up to them and gave them a hug. And the men had no idea, like, what to do or how to process this. They had no category for this. And then one of the soldiers, knowing how badly he had treated them, treated uh, Zamperini, sorry, he, he, he asked, um, you know, how, how, how could you forgive us for the things that we did to you? And, and listen, this is what um, Zamperini said. Well, Mr. Sasaki, the greatest story of forgiveness the world's ever known was the cross. When Christ was crucified, Jesus said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And then listen to this. This is really key. Zamperini continued. It is only through the cross that I can come back here and say this, but I do forgive you. Now, I bring this story up because it's a great example of a man who allowed the gospel not simply to save him. You know, he didn't dump out his alcohol that day and just said, okay, on with life. He actually allowed the gospel to be unleashed in all its power and grace upon his life, so much so that he was able to allow the gospel to shape his outlook on life and, shape, and allow the gospel to shape the way that he treated the war criminals who had mistreated him so badly. This is the power of the grace of the gospel on display. And listen, Zamperini is not a saint. He's not a super Christian. He is a fellow Christian just like you and me. And the power of the gospel can be unleashed on your life and mine if we would just allow God to unleash the power of the gospel in and upon our lives. The question is, will you allow the message of the gospel, the grace of the gospel, and the power of Jesus Christ to be unleashed upon your life today and for all eternity? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time that we've had together Father, even as I preach, I am just reminded of just how needy I am of you for life and breath and everything, just as every person is. But then I am particularly needy of your grace and mercy. I'm such a sinner, and I'm so broken, and uh, I am just really thankful for the gospel today. And so I just pray that all, as all of us walk away from here, I pray that the grace of the gospel might permeate our hearts and minds so that you might unleash your power in our hearts and lives for our good and for your glory. And uh, I thank you for this church, for these precious people. Um, I pray that you bless them today and in the coming months and years. Would you sanctify them? Would you keep them? Would you sustain them? And would you grow them in likeness to their Savior, Jesus Christ? And would you be honored through Arendale Bible Chapel? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.